The news continues, so let's hand over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime, live from Rome. All right, John, thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime, live from the G20 in Rome, the meeting of world powers trying to tackle major economic crises. Roma is called La Citta Eterna, the internal city. But there's only a fleeting moment here for President Biden to show key allies that America can be trusted once more. Biden went full mea culpa with the leader of France, admitting to President Macron the U.S. was clumsy, to use his word, in its handling of a submarine deal with Australia that did deprive France of billions in defense contracts. But that was not the moment of the day. The United States president had a moment with the Pope that may have been a first. The two most powerful Catholics in the world met for 90 minutes. Now, that's long when it comes to a papal meeting. Francis met with former President Trump, for example, for less than half that. Now, the pontiff did Biden a solid, said he was a good Catholic and should keep receiving communion, a papal skippity pack to the conservative cranks, the bishops in the U.S. saying otherwise over Biden's support for women's reproductive rights. And the president returned the favor to the pope with something I've never heard of with a pope before. Let me show you the moment and then I'll explain it. And with your permission, I'd like to be able to give you a coin. But I know my son would want me to give this to you because on the back of it, I have the state of Delaware, in the 261st unit my son served with. The tradition is, and I'm only kidding about this, if next time I see you, you don't have it, you have to buy the drinks. I'm, I'm the only Irishman you've ever met who's yeah. never had a drink. <laughs> okay, so backstory. Um, President Biden had been consoled by the Pope uh, when his son, Bo, died. Okay, uh, hold on for a second. And this challenge coin, a command coin, is something that a lot of military leaders have. Usually it has, uh, you know, who you're with on one side and uh, a state or some other information on the other. And they're given as gifts. The commander-in-chief also has one. The 261 is the division, uh, the detachment that his son Bo served with. So it's a very endearing thing to give. But to, it is true that when uh, one of the commanders gives you one of these coins, it means that the next time they see you, if you don't have it, you buy him a drink. And Biden actually said that to Pope Francis and also shared information. Maybe you didn't know that he doesn't drink. And then the Pope said, OK, Irish love whiskey. Probably get canceled for that in America if he said it. But it was an interesting joke and a moment of warmth between these two men uh, that was very important for the American president. Because overall, here so far, President Biden is on message. Why? This trip is about projecting power. He's close with the Pope. He can mend fences with an ally. He is a president in charge. But does the image here match the reality at home? Democrat infighting may be spun to the media as a good thing in process. But what does it mean to the masses? The governor's race in Virginia is going to be the first true measure. It is in a dead heat, and no one predicted that even a month ago. Terry McAuliffe 
has no business being tied with Republican Glenn Youngkin. He's a former governor, McAuliffe, popular in a blue state where Biden won by 10 points just last year. You combine what? COVID consternation with McAuliffe not being able to brag about his party delivering. No infrastructure, no much needed spending, and it has him in a hole. Is Virginia the first measure of the midterms to come? Let's take that question to the better minds. Republican and Democratic strategists Stuart Stevens and James Carville. Good to have you both. Uh, Jimmy, let me start with you. Uh, wh what do you think of Virginia? Do I have it right that what's happening with McAuliffe is the first look at the measure of Democrat power? Well, this is one Irishman that has had a drink, Chris. But yeah, yes, I mean, it's, a, it's an important I election. I know you have. <laughs> and uh, it's a very important election. Uh, it, it will be bad. It's bad to lose any election. Uh, you know, I wish they would have had to this make been able to consummate this deal uh, prior to Tuesday, but that looks like it's unlikely to happen. But I, I am very worried. I'm very concerned. Every Democrat should be and should be making calls to people in Virginia and get as many people out as we can to vote. It's going to be a very tight election. Now, let's talk tactics for one second, Stuart, uh, before I get your macro on it. Some people showed up at a Yunkin event posing as Charlottesville po protesters, uh, a group you're with, the Lincoln Project, owned that it was them, that they posed this way because they wanted people to remember. Uh, you're getting crushed by people on the right uh, as a dirty tactic. Do you stand behind what was done, and is that being what you guys say you oppose? Um, no. Listen, every day uh, I hear people pleading with the Lincoln Project to help show Democrats how to win, how to play hardball. Um, you know, this is an example. The, the question here is, it's not about some guys who showed up at a rally. It's why hasn't Glenn Youngkin denounced Donald Trump for saying that there were good people on both sides? I mean, that is absolutely outrageous. And it's because Glenn Youngkin wants it both ways. And I think that's the message that needs to be driven here. You know, the, the Lincoln Project was the first in this race to put Charlottesville in an ad. And some people thought maybe it went too far, but we did it. And it worked. And then the McAuliffe campaign followed us and put Charlottesville in a very good ad they did. So I think the question here is we can't ignore what happened in Charlottesville. The question is, why hasn't Glenn Youngkin denounced Donald Trump? No, look, I hear the question. It's a legitimate one. But, Jim, uh, James, the uh, Democrat Party in Virginia uh, has said, look, we weren't part of this. Uh, it shouldn't have happened. Um, what about the Democrat disposition in terms of how to win these upcoming battles? Well, I mean, for, first of all, the Lincoln Project is independent of the Democratic Party of Virginia. I happen to know the chair, chairwoman very, very well. And, you know, and I kind of agree with what Stewart said. Uh, it was to illustrate a point that Youngkin has not denounced Trump saying they were fine people on both sides in, in Charlottesville. I, I think this is a kind of a 10 percent teapot of, uh, like that. But, uh, you know, Terry's campaigned hard. He's raised a lot of money. And, you know, it's just a tight election. And, and it, traditionally, only one time since 1965 where we follow a presidential election has the party that won the presidency, won the Virginia governorship. And that was in 2013. So that there, it, it, it's a race. Virginia is a state that Democrats have done considerably better in, but this is a, a, a tough cycle that we're in right now, and hopefully we, we, we can win this. Some people think we've got a, we're a slight favorite. I, I, myself, I, I'm too nervous to think right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, do your best, brother, because I'm in Rome and I'm half asleep. It's the middle of the night. Um, but, you know, the one metric we know, James, is that eight out of the last 11 um, times you've looked at Virginia and you've seen what has been predictive in the midterms in terms of uh, what kind of party changeover you're going to have. Uh, how big a problem is it for the Democrats in your mind uh, that they get something done now or no matter when they get it done, James, will it still be a big victory that they can campaign on for the midterms? Yes. And, and you know, this thing is it kind of it started this February 1st and it's, we've had a gestation period of nine months. It's, it's time to let's get this thing done, you know, like, uh, yeah, it, sure. And, and when they do, it's going it, to it's going to help. It, they're going to show action. And it's difficult with the, these razor thin non-majority in the Senate and barely a majority in the House to get this done. It's, it's very difficult. The president has been extremely involved in this. People have come in the, the minutia and the detail that he knows about this. He's very involved. In, if, if and when this thing gets done, uh, he should get enormous credit for that. He's getting a, 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 a ton of blame right now, but it, when it gets done, he should get a, a, a ton of credit also. Stuart, uh, what is your read on what it means that Adam Kinzinger, um, Republican, Illinois veteran uh, stand out as a Trump critic has said, I'm out. Look, it's a a sad reality of where the Republican Party is now. Um, It's a difficult place for honorable men and women to serve and be able to keep their conscience. Um, Right now, to, to rise in the Republican Party, you have to be a Trump Republican. And you look at the Ohio Senate race where you have Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance, and they each wake up every day saying, what can I say that's more extreme, that's more crazy? Um, it's just a race to the bottom. And that's where the Republican Party is now. And it's not going to change until you defeat these people. So I, I, I certainly understand why the congressman did this. I think it's a sad day, uh, what it says about the party. But it is the reality that we live in. Mm. And, Stuart, what do you think will be the best change agent? The best change agent is to beat these Trump people. You have to beat people like Glenn Youngkin, who was Donald Trump's handpicked candidate, um, who said that one of the major reasons he was running was to uh, uh, pursue the Trump agenda. You you, You can't have it both ways. Look, you know, the Republican Party does not believe that Joe Biden is a legal president. They don't think we live in a democracy. And how do you negotiate with that? How do you meet that halfway? You can't. You just have to beat these people. You have to have more days like January 5th in Georgia. And until you do that, um, it's going to be a struggle. And it's basically not between two political parties anymore, not the way James and I used to fight this stuff out. It's between one party that's pro-democracy, and that's the Democratic Party, and there's one party that is pro-autocracy, and that's the Republican Party. And I hope the Virginia governor races um, are a good sign of how they're going to be able to defeat that. Chris, Stuart, make a point Well, James, let me give you the last word on this, because you did beat Trump, and yet this harshness continues and is, in fact, growing. So right. what are you really up against and how do you beat it? Well, it, it, I make the point is the Republican Party is not a party. It's a cult. The Democratic Party is a coalition. Coalitions yeah. are, are, are tough to manage. Cults just follow the leader of the cult. So it, it, it's difficult. It's messy. 
And the only thing I know how to do, absent anything else, is try to win as many elections as we can to try to fight as hard as we can. I think I sent out 47 fundraising emails to Terry. And I'm just hoping and praying that, that we win here uh, uh, November 2nd in Virginia. And we'll have to dust off and get up and fight another day. But there's no other way to do that than, as Stuart points out, than to win elections and try to win elections. That's just what we got to do for now. And they're not even, they're, they're trying to take people's right to vote away. So it, it's tough out there, but we, just, we, we owe it to the country, we owe it to everybody else to just keep trying and try as hard as we can and continue trying. As we learned with Hillary Clinton, though, money doesn't always beat a movement. Uh, a better movement does. And we'll see what the Democrats can come up with. James Carville, Stuart Stevens, I'll tell you what, I couldn't ask for better guests to discuss this. I wish you both well, and thank you. Well, thank you, Chris. Right. Thank, thank you, buddy. All Good right. to see you, James. Of course. So, President Biden already showed here, and to you at home, he's no Trump. He can admit mistakes, and the Pope doesn't look dour in his presence. But something else must happen here before he heads home. What is it? Piano, piano. Dopo questo, after this, this is Italia. We go a little at a time here. I gotta have a little sip of cappuccino and then I'll give you the answer right after the break. Everybody was wondering how Biden would deal with the French situation. And you know what he did? He dealt with it the way we tell our kids to do it. If you did something wrong, say you're sorry and move on. Take a look. The answer is, I think, uh, what happened uh, was, to use an English phrase, was clumsy. It was not done with a lot of grace. I was under the impression that uh, France had been reformed long before that the deal was not coming through. I honestly thought that you had not. This was about that submarine deal that went to Australia's billions of dollars that France was counting on, didn't get it. Um, now, what was the power of that? Comes at the beginning of a marathon of meetings with world leaders in the hopes of delivering a simple message, but one that's going to be hard to give assurances on. We're going to be okay, and the United States can be trusted. Did that help with Emmanuel Macron, the French president? I have Jim Shudo. Nobody understands the issues better. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Good my brother. So um, was that a surprise that Biden came out and said, no, that was wrong, and uh, I'll take care of it right now? Listen, the French wanted a mea culpa. I've spoken to French diplomats. They, they were insulted by this. They thought it was consequential that their close ally, America, had kind of pulled the rug out from under them. So they got it. And by the way, it's interesting to hear Biden there. I mean, he, he threw his team under the bus a bit. He said, I thought that was taken care of. We clearly didn't communicate with the French. That's significant. Uh, they got it. Did he make any other assurances uh, to, in effect, make up for what was a significant loss for the French in terms of this nuclear uh, submarine deal? We, we, we don't know that. But the mea culpa has consequences. I think the big challenge for Biden here is the difference between what he can accomplish short term in this weekend and in the coming weeks and months and what's lasting. Because what I hear from European diplomats is, where is America's lasting position in the world today? Are they the leader that they were going to be in the past, or are they going to retreat from the world stage, looking at Afghanistan, for instance? And, and their concern is that this is not a short-term thing 
for America, right? That America will not be the leader it was before and that we, Europe, have to step up and do more on our own. Now, interestingly, and, you know, life's not fair, neither is geopolitics, but they're basically saying, hey, you're like us now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're transient. Your leaders come and go. You guys reverse course. Uh, you know, you're not solid the way we used to see you. That's a tough burden to carry, but what does Biden do to show that the United States can? It is. But you do have European leaders who want to not supplant the U.S., but, but be more prominent. And Macron, by the way, one of them, right? I mean, particularly with Merkel, Angela Merkel leaving, who was kind of a putative leader uh, of, of Western Europe. Macron, he wants to be that guy, right? And he wants France to be that nation. And he's spoken openly about Europe, for instance, having more responsibility for its own security. And, and to your point, right, this is something that you know, Europe kind of has to do, right? I mean, they've been, they've been leaning on the U.S. in a whole host of ways. So th- there is a positive there. But, but the negative, or at least the reality for the U.S., is that our, even our closest allies don't have the same confidence that they had in the U.S. before. And again, Afghanistan was a concrete example of that for them. Yes, they knew the U.S. was going to withdraw at some point, but the way it happened... They were not happy. And, and you, you know, you, you, you can say all the nice things you want as, as a President Biden, but the fact is the U.S. is out of there, and, and now we and Europe have to deal with the consequences. Does that plus his own party not giving what he wants yeah. uh, make it a done deal for Biden before these meetings even start, or does he have a shot? Listen, he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get the—and, and by the way, the president uh, and his team were— uh, you know, they articulated this themselves. They said, you got to send him to Europe with something, right, with this deal— he got close. They do have a framework agreement. We shouldn't, we shouldn't you know, forget about that. And the progressives are on board and that kind of thing. And it looks like they'll probably have a deal, though. You know, I'm not going to bet money on Vegas on it, get given past you know, deadlines being broken. But they're probably going to get it. And I, I would guess that that's what the Europeans believe will happen. Um, but again, th- th- that raises a question long term. For instance, the climate piece of that, big deal. G20, top of the agenda is climate, as is with uh, you know, the climate summit that you'll be at next week. Does that commitment last through the next guy, right, the next president? Obama put us in the Paris Climate Accords. Trump took us out. Biden put us back in. Are U.S. agreements Iran nuclear deal, are they things that survive presidencies and administrations? Or are we on a bit of a yo-yo here? And, and that's, that's a genuine question that the Europeans have and many others around the world have. Well, we'll see what kind of answers the president provides. We'll yeah. be watching in real time. It's good to live history with your brother. All right. Now, another big issue here uh, was with the Pope, will be with the G20 countries, is how we handle the pandemic. Now, what they want is access to the vaccine. What we're struggling with at home is that we have access and we don't want it. We don't want to take it. You now have 70, 75 percent of people who say they're unvaccinated saying, I'll rather quit my job than get this vaccine. So what happens next week with what should be a huge movement for us? Parents may be able to start booking appointments for kids 5 to 11 to get the vaccine. Is this a good thing or is it going to create more trouble? We're going to ask the COVID czar for testing under President Trump. Next. All right, it's a haunting question, but got to ask it. Is the fact that we may be able to soon vaccinate our kids 5 to 11 going to help or hurt the situation in America? Now, let's talk a process first. There's still a couple of more steps before the CDC gives the final go-ahead, but it is looking like next week. What will people do when they are able to vaccinate kids 5 to 11? My wife and I are in this group. 
we're going to do it. Why? We've done the research, we've talked to our doctor, and we believe it's the right thing. Many parents, take a look at your screen. No. Very different than it is with adults. I say this all the time. You know, when it comes to me, I'll basically do anything if you tell me I got a good chance of getting better, but I'm not my kid. We're worried. We're worried about safety. We're worried about how necessary. Messaging matters. Is it consistent? Does there seem to be confidence behind the data? Admiral Brett Giroir was the White House's COVID testing czar under former President Trump. Admiral, always good to see you. Good to be here, Chris. So somebody comes to you and says, what do I do, Doc? Should I give my kid this vaccine? What do you say? Well, the first thing I'll say is uh, the data look really, really very good. Uh, in the 5 to 11-year-old group, even though it was only one-third of the dose, uh, the protection against symptomatic infection was over 90%, which is an outstanding result. And there were no serious adverse events among the children in that age group. And that's just fantastic. Uh, and we know that children can get severe disease. Uh, we've had over 6 million children get COVID. About 1% of them wind up in the hospital. And if you don't get severe disease from COVID, you can get this terrible inflammatory syndrome. So this is a great day to give parents the option. It's highly effective. It appears safe. Um, and uh, it, it is a great day for children and a great day for America. What do you make of that low number of parents who say they're in automatically? So I think we should uh, take a deep breath. Um, the numbers I've seen is about a third of parents will immunize their children immediately. I would imagine that after the vaccine is out and it starts getting uh, within the public, when people talk to their pediatricians, I would expect another 40 or 50 percent of the American people to get the vaccinated. And then there'll be some that don't. And I think we really need to continue to work with the positive messages to be transparent with parents, to be transparent with children, because a 10 or 11 year old child has a say in this as well. Uh, we need to talk to them and get their understanding. But I think you will see that needle move uh, very dramatically as this gets rolled out into the public. Not in my house. I know Cha-Cha is probably watching <laughs> right now. You got no say. If the doctor says you're getting the shot, you're getting the shot. Um, now, the, the, the question that becomes a real practical concern, though, uh, doctor, is the messaging. People are going to say this is only emergency use. That sounds experimental to me. Uh, you're not going to guinea pig my kid. Uh, and we've never really done anything like this before. And then what cuts against it is, but we already mandate vaccines for our kids if they want to go to public school. I'm not using the M word. Um, but in terms of messaging here, how important is it that the government is consistent and constant in messaging? It's, it is the most important thing, Chris, and uh, not just the government, but public health professionals. And parents are right to an extent, and we need to acknowledge their concern. Everyone wants their child to be safe um, and to grow uh, and be healthy. Um, this is an emergency use. It's not the standard of a final approval, and we should admit that. But then explain to parents about the risk-benefit. Um, the risk of getting COVID among even normal children is substantial. If your child is obese, has any lung disease, heart disease, immunosuppression, this is a no-brainer. You need to get vaccinated now. For the rest, do like you said, Chris. Do your research, talk to your doctor, and make a good decision. And I think most parents... Uh, if you don't pressure them, if you're transparent and give them the right information, 
they're going to do the right thing for their child. And for almost all situations, it's to get vaccinated. You know, a big um, item of resistance, especially for people who are supporters of the former president, uh, the administration that you served under, they say, well, then I want to take the mask off. I, I want the mask off my kid then. If I'm going to get vaccinated, then they, they don't need the masks. And I know the scientific explanation for it, why you just want the added protection. You don't really know yet. They're in such tight confines. I've heard it all. But how do you convince people who say, well, if uh, I'm going to give you that my kid gets the vaccine, I have to get something out of it. Their situation has to improve. I don't want masks. What do you make of that trade? Um, You know, it's an artificial trade. What you really get out of vaccinating your child is a high degree of protection that your child won't die, become hospitalized, or get a terrible inflammatory syndrome. That's a pretty good deal. Uh, Two shots for the health of your child. Um, But secondly, uh, you know, masks aren't going to be forever. Uh, And I think the CDC would even admit that. Right now, uh, we see Delta going down. uh, We see vaccinations going up. And there will come a time, and I think the time is very soon, where uh, masks will be reduced. Now, look right now, only about 40% of people in the country actually wear masks when they're in public places. That's down from 70 to 80% in January and February. So mask use has gone down, but we're still beating the virus with Delta going away. It's because of vaccination and it's because of natural immunity. So vaccines, vaccines will, will be the nail in the coffin to the pandemic and masks are not forever. They are temporary, but right now, particularly in indoor crowded spaces, uh, especially if you have a high degree of transmission, uh, there's still a reasonable measure for you to take. And of of course, all of those boxes are checked in school. Admiral Brett Giroir, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Now, something that's being played as a surprise, uh, but any lawyer, even a lousy one like me, uh, had to see this coming. Uh, If it's all about in the Rust movie shooting, where Alec Baldwin accidentally wound up shooting and killing uh, his cinematographer, it's always going to come down to how did live rounds get on a movie set. So that means that the person who was responsible for the rounds on set was either going to own it or deny it. We now know how this situation is going to be played by the attorneys and the team surrounding the 24-year-old who was in charge of the ammunition. Let's bring in a veteran armorer. What makes sense, what does not? Next. The Rust movie set. Investigators say they're still waiting to hear from the armorer on that set. Hannah Gutierrez, about getting a follow-up interview. That is the key in any investigation, by the way. It's not what somebody says the first time. It's what happens once investigators learn more and can go back with different questions. Now, here is a statement from her lawyer. Hannah has no idea where the live rounds came from. Hannah and the prop master gained control over the guns, and she never witnessed anyone shoot live rounds with these guns, and nor would she permit that. They were locked up every night and at lunch, and there's no way a single one of them was unaccounted for or being shot by crew members. So how does that square with what we know about those final moments and what we've heard about the guns being used? 
The guns were in her care. Somebody handed it to Alec Baldwin and said it was a cold gun, meaning safe, and it wasn't. Let's bring in Dutch Merrick. He is a veteran armorer and prop master. It's good to have you back, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. So if the investigation demonstrates that what killed Helena Hutchins was a live round, and that is what the sheriff uh, said last night on this show, then how could the armorer not be responsible for a live round making its way onto the set? Well, there's still a a question of the chain of custody. Everything I've read so far shows that Hannah had the gun all the way till the set. But and then it also says that the first AD handed the gun to Alec Baldwin. So there's there's a bit of a missing piece of the story. Was the armor actually inside the church? Uh, Did she hand it to him outside? Uh, It's still a little a little vague. There's a little missing time lapse there that, that I Myself, I haven't quite figured out. So the AD says he didn't check the gun himself because in order to explain the lapse, either there was a live round put in the gun intentionally or by mistake before or after he got it. So if he says he didn't check it, either he didn't put it in or he is lying and then did put it in what seems most likely to you in, ch- in terms of live ammo being on a set and yet the guns were completely accounted for all the time and locked away and nobody could have ever used them? Well, there's still the story about uh, crew members firing the guns. Now, according to the armorer, the guns were locked up at all times and she knows nothing about firing, firing them. So the, but the sheriff had said that they had heard the crew may have been firing them. I think that's still either a rumor and a red herring or a key part of the story. We're not sure which it's going to be. But those uh, dummy rounds should be in the custody of the armorer at all times. And they go from the safe to the cart to the gun to the actor's hand. If she confused a dummy and a Um, real round somehow, it's hard to imagine. So, well, you've said said that, and let's iterate that for the audience, that you don't believe it is easy for someone with any experience at all, let alone being a master, to confuse a um, blank with a live round. It's crimped at the end. There is no slug. They feel different. Um, So, you know, we would assume that's not what happened. What do you make of her uh, position of blaming the producers Uh, Let's put up their statement or I'll just read it from her attorneys. Hannah was hired on two positions on this film, made it extremely difficult to focus on her job as an armorer. She fought for training, uh, days to maintain weapons and proper time to prepare for gunfire, but ultimately was overruled by production and her department. So uh, I talked to a prop master that was offered that job, and he had submitted a budget and a labor outline. And that labor uh, was going to be five people in the prop department to manage all of the props and the guns. And that would include an armorer. Now, the producers said, we don't have that kind of money. It's going to be you plus two assistants. And by the way, one of those assistants is going to be the armorer. So it sounds as though they did understaff that show based on the other prop master's breakdown. 
the training, it seems to me that she was asking for a day or a period of time to train with the actors in gun handling. That's my guess, because it's a little unclear the way she said it. Um, additionally, the, all reports is there weren't enough or maybe no safety meetings. It's standard practice in filmmaking to have a safety meeting if you're going to do pyrotechnics or stunts or firearms or anything that could potentially be dangerous. You have a safety meeting in the beginning of the day and then you have safety meetings throughout the day where the entire crew circles up we describe what's about to happen, and they might say, well, this is the stunt coordinator, this is the armor, they're going to describe their course of events. Does anybody have any questions? And once there are no questions and everyone's satisfied that this is totally safe, then we can proceed. If they were not having safety meetings, that's a major concern, Chris. Dutch Merrick, you know the job, you know the reality, and you know when things go wrong. Uh, one thing is for sure, there may not be charges, we don't know yet, but there will be changes. Appreciate you, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Be well. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, let's go back to well, where we are, the G20. We had a moment today that is unlike any I've ever even heard of uh, with a pontiff, let alone with a president, okay? Very special moment when Biden tried to convince Pope Francis that age is only a number. Right back. Yeah. Delia Gallagher and I are already uh, talking. You can't come to Rome without having Delia Gallagher. And I was lucky enough to live history with her today between Pope Francis and President Joe Biden. So in one exchange, uh, as I already told you earlier in the show, the president gave him this challenge coin, this command coin and said, hey, you got to buy the drinks the next time. And, he, and the Pope said, yeah, the Irish, they like whiskey. But then Joe Biden told him a story about age being just a number and a matter of perspective told through the story of this very famous pitcher in baseball history named Satchel Paige. Take a listen to this. Thank you for that. He was a famous African-American baseball player in America and he didn't get to play in the Major League Baseball until he was 45 years old and usually pitchers lose their arm when they're 35. He pitched to win on his 40 Seventh birthday. The press walked in the locker room and said his name was Satchel Page. The commanding excited said, Satch, no one's ever pitched a win at age 47. How do you feel about pitching a win on your birthday? And he looked at me and said, Boys, that's not how I look at age. I look at it this way. How old would you be? if you didn't know how old you were. You're 65, I'm 60. God Vatican correspondent Delia Gallagher with me. We enjoyed that moment together. I felt bad for the translator. He's like, right. lost an arm, and isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's like, tough. <laughs> you know, baseball. But what a moment, right? Okay, look, so that moment, what does it tell us? The, the complete ease of rapport um, and that wasn't the only moment, right? I mean, uh, President Biden was talking quite a bit. At, that was towards the end, right? He was having to go out, um, but he kind of kept stopping and, and, and saying these little um, sidebars. And, and so, you know, that uh, is what we saw because obviously we didn't see what they were saying to each other inside. But certainly all of those moments that we saw, um, even handing him the command coin and so on, <clears throat> I, don't, I haven't seen those kind of things happen 
when a head of state meets the Pope. This was a very um, different kind of meeting than, and I've been watching these things for 20 years. So um, there was certainly an ease there. Um, the Pope was very receptive to it. So I think, you know, even the length of time, I mean, that's really unprecedented. That was a long time. So obviously there were lots of, you know, there was policy discussions, okay. There were, uh, but it just points to me that this was really a very personal, intimate meeting, as we had suspected. And something else happened that we thought they'd leave alone. Like, we thought the reproductive rights thing and the communion, they already dealt with that, they'd leave it alone, but no. That, that was the game changer. When President Biden afterwards told reporters that the Pope had said to him, I am happy that you are a good Catholic, you should continue to receive communion. Now, that's huge. That's huge on one level, yes, of course, because it's a response to what's been going on in the United States with some of the bishops um, who want to deny communion to pro-choice politicians. Um, but really, let's look at that. Uh, what does the Pope do there? His whole stance <clears throat> on, this, on this question, Chris, is the question of communion should be decided between the person involved and his priest. <clears throat> So it's a question of conscience, together with the priest, whatever your particular situation is. We have, and he's even said this, for example, for communion with divorced and remarried people, right? So this is his whole approach. What does he do? He doesn't come out and say that to the bishops. He shows it. He does it himself. This is the example I want you guys to follow. And then, in doing that, he establishes, I mean, imagine it's the president of the United States and the Pope, and he's saying, I know your character, I know your heart, you're a good Catholic. I mean, that's outstanding kind of uh, phrasing for a Pope and a president. That establishes an intimacy, that establishes already, that's the Pope saying, you know, this, this is um, somebody who I know and I've, I've, I've spoken with on that kind of a level. Now, the Holy See has not echoed President Biden's reckoning of what he was told by the Pope yet, right? Oh, well, they, they'll never do that. I mean, that's um, something that, uh, that was said, uh, according to President Biden, in the private discussion. Right. They will never talk about that. So it won't go one way or the other. But also, that's his second time that Francis has made it clear to the bishops in the United States that this is the way he wants this interpreted. Yes, that's right. But, you know, there's a lot of leeway with um, bishops and what they can do and how they want to handle um, these questions. So the, the thing is, it's classic Francis. He doesn't come out and, and, and say it straight out. He shows it and he sends the message via another route. And this was a very powerful one. But what again, what I find even more powerful about it is just, you know, I mean, think back to, to John Kennedy. Um, you know, the whole debate then was, oh, well, you know, he doesn't want to be too Catholic because then they're going to think he's under control of the Pope. And here, I mean, how times have changed, right? So we see this very close relationship and the Pope really reinforced that by going so personal. I mean, how more personal can you get than to say, I'm you're a priest, and I'm saying you're a good Catholic. I mean, it was a big deal. That's you'll, stunning you know, to you've me. done it 20 years. You may do it another 20. I don't think you'll ever hear anybody say drinks on you again to the Pope <laughs> and, have, and have him ready to go. Delia Gallagher, thank you so much. It's great to live history with you. Thank I appreciate you. you. All right, I'm going to be in Rome all weekend as part of CNN's coverage of the G20 summit. So as they say here, ci vediamo domani. A domani, I'll see you tomorrow beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern.